Hello, everybody. Welcome once again to another fantastic episode of the Business Creators Radio Show, where we help you win at the game of business and marketing so you can thrive from the intersection of your brilliance and your passion. My name is Adam Homie. I am your host, and I am honored by this wise decision that you've just made to tune in and invest in yourself today. As the name says, our listeners are business creators. We have our small businesses. We have our local businesses. We have our entrepreneurial ventures. We have the marketing and business coaches, consultants, and mentors. We have the folks who help others create their businesses, and we have you do-it-yourselfers like to have your own hands on the levers. If you are one or more of the above, and many of our folks who tune in every week for our fresh episodes, like me, are all of the above, take a moment, explore episodes, and discover how we can help you at www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. You'll also find us on outlets such as iTunes. Make sure to subscribe. You'll get immediate access to over 250 episodes covering a breadth and depth of topics relevant to business creators just like you. And when you subscribe, you will get fresh content served to you every single week. Today is going to be very, very exciting. Those of you who have been following the Business Creators Radio Show and have made some educated guesses or done some research as to our avatar and who our typical listener is, know that the plurality of our listeners are small business owners and entrepreneurs of ventures that have one to five employees. And one of the themes that comes with having a smaller business or a business on the rise is how, given that your resources are not infinite, your cash flow is not infinite, your human resources are not infinite, your own knowledge is not infinite, how do you compete with some of the larger companies in your niche? How do you find that little piece of heaven that is uniquely yours? And there is a tactic out there that was introduced to me just a few weeks ago, and I'm so excited to be able to bring this to you today. It's called Positioning Roulette. And today we're going to get into how to position your brand using this thing called Positioning Roulette. And I can tell you there's one person who's qualified to tell you about Positioning Roulette, and that's its creator. It's a gentleman named Uli Applebaum. So let me tell you about Uli. He has vast experience in marketing and brand strategy. His international experience in coming up with fresh perspectives to position a brand product or company, as well as in innovation, has helped companies large and small go from zero to success without breaking the bank. Uli's unique way of approaching business problems and helping businesses strategize has developed into a technique that he calls positioning roulette. Uli's system of flashcards helps executives and teams overcome their mental barriers and see their company in a different light, uncovering fresh and actionable insights that trigger action, identify innovative ideas to stimulate brand growth, and inspire fresh perspectives on businesses and categories. Sounds like fun to me. Uli, come on in. The weather's fine. Hi, Adam. Thanks for having me, and thanks for the great introduction. Well, that was your official introduction, which we like to read off here on the show. <laughs> now that we've done that, now that we've done that, before we dive in into the great material you're going to share with us today, what we like to do with our guests, as our listeners may have a separate browser tab open, they may be Googling you or positioning roulette, trying to figure out exactly who you are, is let's take a step back and tell us a little bit about your personal journey or your business journey and what has brought you to this point where you are today, serving business creators from the intersection of your brilliance and passion. Absolutely. Uh, so first of all, as you can hear from my accent, I'm a German. I was born in Germany, um, but I moved yep. uh, to the U.S. Uh, 16 years ago. And uh, I spent my whole career in the, uh, they call them account planning department at advertising agencies. It's basically uh, the strategy department of agencies. Um, and I've done that in Germany. I've done that in, in here in the U.S. I've done that around the world. Um, and uh, I was always fascinated by what um, makes people tick, you know, how do they create a perception on someone or something, 
you know, how do they form their opinion? How do they change their opinion about um, about products, about brands, about causes, about, uh, you know, politicians and these kind of things? And uh, that's why I right. stayed in, in this discipline for such a long time. And uh, two years ago, we decided to move back to uh, Minnesota, where my wife is from. Um, and, uh, you know, I decided, okay, it's more of a lifestyle choice. There aren't any sort of like major big agencies here in town. So um, I want to start my own business. And one of the things I had on my mind for a long time is the original idea behind a positioning roulette. And, you know, Adam, this was one of these moments where you decide, okay, I've been thinking about this concept for the last 10, 15 years. And either I actually do it now or I, you know, put in a drawer and forget about it forever. So I stopped coming back to it. So I decided this is my chance to now uh, develop it, create it, and implement it. And I've been doing that ever since uh, five, six years ago. So and here I am now uh, talking to you. And the other thing I've, I've learned is, you know, um, my classical training or professional training was mainly with sort of like some of the big global brands, Procter & Gamble, Unilever, Wrigley, and these kind of brands. But a lot yeah. of this knowledge and this know-how can be applied or should be applied to smaller businesses. But many small businesses don't have the resources to hire, you know, either a large advertising agency or a large consulting firm. So that gives me a chance right. to translate this experience into, you know, something that is accessible and useful for smaller businesses. And uh, been doing this for the last, as I said, five, six years and loving it. That's fantastic. And yeah, you bring up a great point that for the smaller businesses, as I said earlier, this can be something of a challenge. So what we're going to do here is we're going to go through a series of steps that are going to lead folks to work on their creative process as pertains to branding. And we are going to talk about the positioning roulette system. So let's start with a very broad question, very broad, to sort of give us a framework for what we're going to discuss here. So Uli, if you could break down for us what you define as the creative process for the everyday entrepreneur. The creative process, it's a, it's a, it's a big question you're asking here. Um, yes. I think the, the challenge for, for many entrepreneurs is that they are so busy in running their business and they are so knowledgeable about, you know, their category, their competitors, the way their product is being made or, you know, the services they offer. That the biggest challenge for them is to almost step outside of their bubble and look at their situation, their problem, their brand, their competitors from a fresh perspective. That is one of the most difficult things to do. And it's not only for small entrepreneurs. The same applies to you and to me. So if I need, you know, a fresh perspective, I reach out to a third party because I know I'm so much in my own little world and so busy pushing it forward. Um, that that it's often difficult to overcome your own challenges. Um, so that's like number right. one. The, the second thing is is also to understand. That's why it's something I've learned in the last few years is like we are full of assumptions and biases on how things work. Right? Um, you know, I've been someone has been selling uh, I don't know liquor for the last twenty years. Sure, he or she has learned a lot about selling liquors. But you make also a lot of implicit assumptions on what should be done and shouldn't be done. And these assumptions are often what prevents you from thinking creatively and innovatively in your day-to-day. That's sort of like another big big thing. But once you realize that, then it it becomes, I don't want to say easy, but it becomes more easy to to, um, change the way of doing things, the you know, the resources you use, the people you you ask your questions. And simply transforming these initial steps will lead you to a different type of solution. That's the amazing part about creativity is creativity is usually the outcome of a small process or change in the way you actually do things. It's not, you know, something magical that, that only a few of us have. And as soon as you start to change your behavior, then you start to come up with new and fresh ideas. As soon as you start to speak to different type of people or ask different type of questions, the novel ideas or the creative solutions will come up almost naturally. That's the fascinating part about it. 
Yeah, very much so. And one of the points you bring up that's very important is that, generally speaking, entrepreneurs and business creators do get stuck within their own tunnel vision. After you've been holding that hammer long enough, you begin to see everything as a nail, or you begin to see everything as the type of nail. Even more, you get to see everything as the type of nail that would be driven by that particular hammer. So if you're holding a tack hammer, you see a bunch of tacks. If you're holding a sledgehammer, you're seeing those big, giant nails that are used to hold railroad ties down. It's so not only just the general idea of the tool you're holding, but what type of tool and what is that tool designed to do? We see this with business creators who are those who actually serve other business creators. Uh, for instance, and I'm going to be candid here, and I mean no lack of love for any of this because I have nothing but love, is if a company specializes in, say, managing Facebook advertising, they're going to see Facebook ads as the answer to every single thing. If they specialize in webinars, they're going to see webinars as the be-all and end-all to everything. If they help companies design their free strategy sessions, they're going to say, you got to get everybody on the phone. And that's not that's neither good nor bad. It's just a matter of that is what you specialize in. And that goes back to something that I've said a long time. When somebody approaches my company and, or, and they say, you know, we're looking for a one-stop shop so we can just work with one person and get everything done, I say that is absolutely the last thing you want to do because now not only are you going to continue to remain in tunnel vision, you're going to become subject to somebody else's tunnel vision that is informed by things that don't even have anything to do with you. You want a couple different resources. I have two companies that I work with myself, two companies I work with myself, both of whom position themselves as the one-stop shop for everything. Two items on that. First of all, it's not true because I happen to know there are certain things that each of them cannot do. Again, neither good nor bad. It's what it is. Number two, number two, they may do a hundred different things, but you know where somebody's brilliance and passion truly is. You know what the primary service is and what the add-on service is. And what's also good is when you have a couple different people on the team, you have a couple different points of view. And should something happen, you have redundancy in your business so that you're not caught out. And I think that when we get stuck in that place of wanting to run through one resource, one set of eyes, or only look through our own set of eyes, that tunnel vision can get in the way, and it can really impact your brand. And I think that's one of the things that causes business people to become not as creative as they should be. So other than that, Uli, why else aren't business people more creative, and what can they do about it? Um, I would say, and uh, everything you just said is 100% correct, I would say the other thing is, it's going to sound weird, but it's don't listen to your friends and your family. Those are the oh, worst yeah. people to get it, to worst people to get advice from. So to give you an example, a few years ago, I started an online community for new mothers. My wife just had given birth to our twins, and I was just impressed by how she was able to like bond and connect with other moms that also just had given birth and uh, built this website with a friend. We did all that on, on you know, bootstrapping it and, and in our spare time. And all I constantly received was what an amazing idea that is from my wife, from my friends, from my family. But in, after two, or two, or two and a half years, we had to shut it down because we realized that while the idea was great, the way it was executed was done very poorly and the world had changed, had become more mobile, more social and stuff like that. And that's when I realized I wish I would have had, you know, someone a bit more contrarian, someone who would have told me, you know, great idea, but execution sucks. Or have you thought about this? Or that's some holes in your thinking or in your brand experience and stuff like that. So what I've learned from that is it's great to ask feedback from people that like you for your ego. It's not good for building a successful business. So I've stopped doing that. So it's like, because what you do is you reinforce your own belief, right? And you hear what you want to hear and you, people tell you what they think um, you want to hear, which is exactly what happens at the highest level in this country right now. But that is the, the big no-no if you want to be able to think differently and creatively because it simply means get new ideas, you know? And if you just talk to people like you or people who like you, you're not going to really get those news ideas because they try to validate you, reinforce what you're trying to do. 
Right. We have things like confirmation bias is one example. And what I Absolutely. see with when I see with entrepreneurs and business creators, particularly when they're just starting out, is they get some advice that really does not pertain to entrepreneurship or business creation at all. One of the things you see very frequently is they get that great business advice from that guy they see at the bar whose brother-in-law was self-employed for a few months. <laughs> yeah, that's yep. the advice I want to start my business. And you get things that are just really, really, I'm going to come out and say it, whacked out. I was having an introductory session some, with somebody once about 10 years ago. And, I mean, we're talking about somebody who's very, very basic. This is somebody who was working for a company and wanted to hang out her own shingle to do some other consulting. She was looking forward to multiple streams of income, uh, eventually having her very own firm that she did full time. Exactly the stuff that you want to do. Totally with it. But some of the advice she was getting was, really freakazoid. Let me give you an example. I mentioned that stuff that they tell business creators, uh, you know, form a corporation. One of the first things you need to do, even if you don't know exactly what you're doing yet, form a corporation to represent your interests, corporate veil, tax benefits, what have you. Get a federal tax ID if you're in the United States or whatever the equivalent is of a business taxation identity in any other country. And the third is use those two things to go and get a corporate checking account and make your first deposit of seed investment. Even if it's $2,000 out of your own account that you're investing in your business just to get started, identify your business's money. And she said, well, you know, I am, I'm very good with Excel, so I don't see why I need to get another bank account. I can just clearly say which ones are the business expenses and which ones are the personal expenses. And the IRS will follow that thinking, uh, no, they won't. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, basically, basically you might as well just write them a letter saying, please audit me. And then here's my other favorite, Uli, and I, I know this is a little bit of a little bit of a commiseration fest here, and we're going to get into this uh, positioning thing in just a moment. Very exciting is um, you get, I got those folks, when I decided I wanted to be an entrepreneur, the very first thing I did was form a limited liability company. Second thing was get the tax ID. Third thing was set up the bank account. And as soon as I announced the name of my LLC, and I was so excited. I had an LLC. I was a businessman now. Yes. <laughs> I, just, I went so far as to write to my accountant. I say, when we do our tax returns this year, make sure where it, right, it says occupation, I wanted to say businessman. I was geeked. Uh -huh. <laughs> and I started to hear from these folks saying, well, why did you form a company? You should just do a sole proprietorship. Like, mm -hmm. I already knew enough to know that that was bad advice. Uh, and <laughs> I played along because, you know, you know, don't necessarily dismiss the idea because there may, there may be diamonds in that rough. What I kept sure. finding was that people that gave advice like that uh, such as the I can use one account for personal and business or you don't need to form a corporation or what have you, is it always comes, they always say, my friend who's a lawyer said so. <laughs> Here's the problem with that. Yep. Here's the problem with that. My friend who's a lawyer. First of all, I don't believe any attorney is giving that advice. That's number one. Yeah. Because the attorney themselves would have a corporation wrapped around their law practices for the reasons that they, they know better than us, number one. Number yeah. two, I don't want to hear from your friend who's a lawyer. I'll believe it if you say, my lawyer who I pay for professional <clears throat> advice. Key difference there. Yeah. <laughs> Key difference. That is and so, have, so true. When we have these types of bad advice coming at us, it can really impact our creativity is where I was going with all this. Because now we're getting distracted by this minutiae stuff that really is pretty templated if you know what you're looking for. And it's getting in the way of the creativity you need to properly brand and nurture your business. So let's leap ahead. Let's leap ahead. Uh, actually, I need at least two steps ahead here because I think we need to backtrack a little bit. Uh, Uli, in your experience, what are some of the most common mistakes that you see business creators do when positioning their brand? And what can they do about it? 
Well, one is they don't understand what problem they're trying to solve, right? So uh -huh. you want to bake cakes. You want to you want to open a bakery because you like to bake cakes. The reality is there are a lot of cake bakers out there, bakeries out there already. So really understand what is it you're trying to address. And you see that both with large corporations. You see that, you know, BMW trying to launch a new model faces the same problem as a small business owner, uh, you know, trying to expand his or her business. Um, so that's, that's what I've learned is one of the, the, the biggest challenges because, again, the way you frame your problem is going to help you determine what the solution is, right? And let me give you a very simple example. Is one, one I like to use is simply this notion of, you know, you may have a grocery store or a small store, and you may have long lines at the checkout during peak hours. So you may ask yourself the question, how can I shorten my lines at checkout during peak hours? That's one way to look at it. But another way, and that assumes that people don't want to stay in line, you know, you want to increase these kind of things, and that, that's perfectly valid. Another way to phrase the question is to simply ask yourself, what do I need to do to make it more entertaining for people to wait in line so that they don't feel like they're wasting their time? Uh, that leads to a completely different set of solutions because you don't focus on shortening the lines. You, you focus on, you know, turning the experience of waiting into something more interesting, which is frankly exactly what Disney World does, um, you know, to keep people entertained during the long waiting times between the different rides. So defining the problem and the way you define the problem is really a first step sort of like to creativity. And what I've learned is a lot of professionals, you talk to a lot of marketing professionals and they will tell you, oh, yeah, that's a, that's very true. That's exactly right. Um, but they don't do it. You know what I mean? We tend to skip over it and say, oh, yeah, people want a wedding cake, so I'm going to do wedding cakes. But what exactly are you trying to solve for is worth spending, you know, enough time and talk to enough people about to really understand because that's going to drive exactly what you are offering to people and the solutions you're offering to people. That's like a big first yeah. uh, first element. Right. And I think that's all very important. So what we run into a lot of times is, again, you're trying to position a brand against some of the larger companies, some of the big brands, some of the big guys. So how can mm -hmm. the small business creator out there outperform the big guys with strategic creative marketing? Let's really get into the some of the heart of what we're going to cover here today. Yeah, absolutely. So the interesting thing, you start to see a big trend, right, um, which is big companies, especially packaged good companies like Kellogg's and General Mills and stuff like that, start to actually buy small companies as startups because these startups right. offer something that the large companies cannot replicate so easily. So while the biggest challenge, obviously, a small company has is the lack of resources, right? Um, right. And, and you often look at that and you say, oh, my God, that's a huge barrier. The benefit and the assets small companies usually have is they have the ability to consumers, to their customers, to, you know, to talk to them, to listen to them, um, and uh, uh, figure out, you know, how they can tweak and fine-tune their product or their service to appeal to those. You'd think that the large companies have that too, right? But the large companies have large right. market research departments that use these big, expensive methodologies. But what I'm really talking about is, you know, standing in line or sitting in a coffee shop or being in a bike shop and talk to customers. I really understand you know, what brought them here, what they're looking for, what they like about a specific offering and don't like. So this closeness. In, in the, the marketing world, we speak more and more about empathy. And empathy is nothing more than the ability to put yourself in someone else's shoes. And the interesting thing, as a small business owner, a small company, you have way more uh, chances to do that than in large organizations. If you are VP marketing at, you know, a big corporation XYZ, you never talk to your consumers. And the people you talk to is the kids of your neighbors, you know, during during a Saturday afternoon pool party, which is really not reflective of the market reality. So that is uh, 
number one. And number two is the irony. Uh, what I've learned is, is most companies, so over the course of my career, I had the chance to work in, in various industries and categories. And, um, and uh, actually over like a course span of 10, 15 years, work for competitors in similar categories. And one thing that always comes up is the sort of like assumption that your competitor knows something you don't. You know what I mean? Um, but the yeah, reality I'm is when you talk you. to everyone, when you talk to everyone, you, you get the same answer. They must be doing something. So I'm going to follow what they are doing. And I think that's the worst thing a small company can do. I think a small company that customers and really focused on building either the best or coolest product out there um, or provide the best service or the best, you know, restaurant experience or whatever the business they're in, um, they are more likely to succeed than if they try to replicate what the big guys do or what they try to do. I'll give you an example, uh, which I, I read that came across a couple of months ago, which I, I think is fascinating, is, you know, Kellogg's has been in the cereal business for a long, long time. And a few years ago, they started with these sort of like morning energy bars, right? And they've always tried yeah. to crack this code. And a couple of months ago, they bought this company called, uh, I think they're called RX Bar, which is basically a, a very small um, uh, energy bar company based out of Chicago, and which was basically started by a couple of guys who just wanted like a power bar that has natural ingredients where you actually know what ingredients are in there. So they started yeah. out, if I remember well, less than, less than 10 years ago. And, you know, started to very slowly build distribution, work on the product, talk to the trade, talk to the customers, do all these kind of things. Kellogg's bought them a couple of months ago for $600 million. And it's absolutely mind-blowing. Uh, and as I said, they, did, they started less than 10 years ago. So my point is, if you really focus on what your customers want and listen to them. So you mentioned earlier the confirmation bias. That's the worst thing that can, you know, you can apply when listening to your customers. Um, and when you really try to focus on making the best product or product experience or service based on what you learn from your customers and adjust on an ongoing basis, I firmly believe you will beat, you will beat the big guys uh, because that's the third thing you have working for you as a small company you're faster, you know, you can experiment, you have a, a way quicker feedback loop when something works and doesn't work than if you work in a large organization. So, um, and that's also an advantage. So all that to say, Adam, is, you know, I think small companies actually are in today's world at an advantage versus their com larger competitors. And it's the large competitors that are struggling in adjusting to become more agile, to be closer to the customer, to be more flexible in, in the way they manufacture and produce their products and these kind of things. I can't disagree with any of that because what I've <laughs> noticed in, in my work, what I do with, with business creators is we see folks, and I fell into this a little bit myself during my first three months as a full-time entrepreneur myself, is you come from a corporate background and you get all geeked about all these processes and all these intricate, elaborate things that you experience in your corporate world, and then you want to bring it to your startup venture. And I discovered that what that frequently translates to instances to meetings, 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 meetings. Well, one of the things I'm very proud of is the work that I've been doing helping this one particular startup move from being pre-revenue to being in revenue. One of the shifts that I noticed with this venture is when they made the shift from being pre-revenue to revenue is there was a big backlash from the entire organization, all the employees and all the contractors against the meetings and the executives of the startup would say, well, yeah, we should probably have a meeting. It's like, no, no, you started to see this from, from the people who are actually, you know, on the front line. They say, no, no, we don't have time for a meeting. We're implementing now. Remember, we have customers. And they wanted to do retreats. And there was a unanimous vote that said, 
no, we don't need any money spent on a team retreat. What we need is that money spent on marketing because we're on a roll here. We're getting customers. We need new customers. And I incorporated some of these findings in addition to others inside my own book, which is Groundhog Day is an event, not a business strategy. It's one of the big changes you see in any company, whether it's in terms of tolerance for meetings or the types of meetings, whether it's the extent to which people are willing to tinker with things rather than simply find the fastest way to make thing work, things work, is when they go from pre-revenue to revenue. So, Uli, let's say you were working with a startup. Let's say you were working with a new line of business within an existing company that was making the transition from pre-revenue to revenue. Do you, have you noticed any changes in how they approach branding and how they approach creativity once they make that Rubicon crossing from pre-revenue to revenue? I want to hear from another point of view. Well, what I've learned is, and I've, I've experienced that a couple of times in my career where, you know, the company, large organization wanted to do something from the way they usually did things. And it usually started with creating, um, at the time we used to call it like skunk teams, which are special task forces um, with a you know select group of people that basically work outside the processes and the methodologies of the organization. Sometimes it you know it literally means moving a team physically out of the corporate headquarters into a smaller office to have them them operate. Um, uh, sort of like more independently. Um, and, and part of that is also redefining and challenging, as I said earlier, all the assumptions you have about, um, you know, succeeding and building a brand. So everything from, you know, we used to do that this way, or these are the type of validation, or this is the type of research methodology we use, uh, all of that gets completely challenged. To be able to um, to uh, uh, you know think differently, and the third thing, frankly, is limited budgets. You know, one big belief or one one big assumption is that you know creativity only happens when there are no constraints and no limitation and everything is possible. And and I believe, and you see that more and more, that the more constraints and challenges you have, the more creative you become. You know, if I said give you a $10 million as a marketeer and he tell you, hey, this is your marketing budget, you know, your natural solution, and a lot of experts will tell you that, is like go and do some television advertising, you know, or blast it out in, in, um, in traditional or, or even social communication. If I come instead and say, you know, your marketing budget is $100,000, good luck find a way to build your brand and raise brand awareness, you are going to approach this very, very differently than, you know, if you have unlimited resources at your disposal. And and when I talk to, to my big clients, um, you know, in like the pre-check interviews and these kind of things, that's a question I often ask them is, you know, if you only had, you know, $1 million, let's say for a large organization that spends $40, $50 million, where would you put this money? And the answers you get are always fascinating because they're basically this basically forces you to focus on what is the most effective within you know your category or for your brand at building businesses. It's it's mind blowing. So I'll give you an example. A few years ago, I didn't work for them specifically, but I talked to them a lot. It was Vitamix, you know, the blender you can you can uh, you can buy it, sort of like the the food blenders, and um, you know they were looking for to develop like a big advertising campaign and stuff like that but when you ask them this question if you had a million dollars where would you spend it what they would tell you is they would tell you well I would spend this in demonstrations at Costco because that's the single biggest conversion tool we have at our disposal the same is with um, with Harley Davidson right a few years ago I worked for Harley Davidson and they were just in the news uh, recently um, because they're talking about shifting their their production lines back to Thailand you know, and, and they try to appeal to new people, younger customer, more ethnic diverse customers, basically to rejuvenate their user base. And, you know, and they spend a lot of money on advertising and these kind of things. And when you ask them what is the single most, you know, effective conversion tool, it's basically 
a metal stand that costs something like $5,000, if I remember well, where you put a bike on and which allows you to sit on the bike, turn on the engine, rev the engine, shift gears while not moving. So basically like, you know, keeps your bike stationary. And uh, that is the single most effective way to convert potential buyers to Harley-Davidson because in that case, they specifically experience the brand and what it means to ride and then ride a Harley-Davidson in that case. So limiting yourself in terms of budgets, taking you out of your context and asking questions that, you know, how can we do things differently from the way we've done it before um, makes you more accountable for the outcome and makes you way more creative in the type of solution you are you are able to come up with, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think so. And, you know, you mentioned Harley-Davidson. This brings me up. This brings up another thing that just kind of popped into my head. I love these types of interviews where one sparks the other's creativity. So thank you for this. Uh, you mentioned, mm-hmm. and this is and this is still, as of the time we're doing this interview, uh, a developing story about Harley-Davidson potentially going to Thailand or potentially moving some of their uh, production outside the United States. This whole thing with the mm-hmm. tariffs and everything is going to be an ongoing thing for a while. And there is some backlash against Harley-Davidson making that move because of the perception that Harley-Davidson is one of those quintessentially made-in-the-USA type companies. And that kind of move could potentially cost them a lot of audience. In fact, there's another competitor that is already latching onto that saying, we're staying right here in the United States of America. Buy our bikes. So I don't. Mm-hmm. So this is not meant to be political. This is just simply an analysis of things that are being said and things that are being noticed. Here's what it made me think of. Let's say that Harley Davidson. I'm going to continue to use them as an example hypothetically here. Mm-hmm. Decided to look at what are some of the public relations benefits from taking some of our manufacturing to another country. Now, that might require them to appeal to a new demographic they haven't even thought of before. Because some of the old demographic may say, I'm done with you people, but there may be another demographic ready to move in. And if they choose to make that shift, is this something that you've seen with some companies where they decide they want to start a new line of business, a new product, a new offering that goes in a different direction from what they've been known for up until now. And I'll ask a specific question, then I'll ask a broad question. So let's start with a specific question. Is it always necessary to give this new product or this new thing a completely different name? Um, it depends on whether you can stretch it, right? So sometimes you can – it's funny because at the beginning of my I would have said, no, absolutely not. And I have seen a couple of examples where a brand was able to branch out in a completely different category, but, but by staying true to its core values, right? I don't want to say authentic, but it's being true to what they claim to be. Um, so that is possible. In the case of Harley specifically, the problem is because they are so much rooted into, you know, this Americana and this American pride that it becomes a contradiction to start to say, hey, I'm going to produce bikes abroad, you know, so I can uh, like that. There it becomes a, as long as it does sort of like the, the core values your brand is built on. Yeah. You, you have a disconnect between and what you then do, that's why trouble is then not only, and that's a problem Harley has, right, to appeal to new younger customers, but right. they're trying, they've been trying to solve for the last 20 years. When you do these type of things, then you start to sort of like piss off your core user base, which is a very dangerous yeah. thing to do for a, for a brand, especially a brand like Harley Davidson. So, getting upset your core users even though they're sort of like a dying breed over the over the next generation is a very dangerous thing to do 
yeah. So, so it doesn't quite, I, quite answer your question. It's, the answer is probably it depends on what your brand is right. based on, basically, the values you're trying to, to convey into a new category or not. Right. So basically, the answer is it depends and not always, but sometimes. Because so, what, I, cause yeah, what I've also seen – some, what I've also seen some companies do, I'm not going to mention any names, but I can think of one very specifically that I'm very intimately familiar with, is they were, they were a service or are a service, and they're designed for a very specific tiny niche within a larger audience. And they have an elite product. They have a very high-end product. They do a lot of things that their competitors don't do with this product that only appealed to a very small percentage of the population. And they got a lot of pushback of, your rates are so high. And the audience wasn't appreciating all the extras they were getting by investing in this one particular service versus the competition. However, mm -hmm. a small percentage of the audience would only work with this company, exclusively with this company, because this company did all those other things that the other companies uh -huh. just don't. So the owner of that company thought about this and made the strategic decision that uh, if I lose my elite brand, I'm going to lose my elite customers. Because now, mm -hmm. if I decide to run this company like every other company, then I'm going to become just another company. And all that has to happen is for some competitor of mine to start doing the stuff that I was doing, and they're going to knock me right out. So their decision mm -hmm. was is they would start a second company that rendered yeah. the more mainstream version of the service at the more mainstream rates so they can go for two different markets and they use two different brands so neither one dilutes the other. Yeah. And that makes complete sense in this, uh, in this sense. It's, and you see that also with some car manufacturers that try to move up the price, price ladder, right? They create like, what is it, Toyota and, um, and Lexus. You know, they decided yeah. we're not going to create a Toyota luxury version. We're going to create a new brand to do that. And uh, but but then again, there are other brands. You know, the one I was thinking about is is Amazon that manages to spread across categories, and no one seems to to be bothered by that. You know, when you think about it, Amazon started as an online bookstore many 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 years yep. ago. You know, and then they started to sell other things. Um, and people started to say, oh, no, the, it's gonna, not going to work, you know, because the brand is about online bookstores like a Borders would be or Barnes & Nobles. But because of their, you know, their core strength and their core values are all about logistics, distribution, and low prices, they've been able to migrate into this category. Now, and now it's one of the biggest, you know, e-commerce platform, as you know, in, in the world. And they sell you anything from, you know, toothpaste to you know, diapers to to books still or bicycles or whatever you want to do. And no one said, oh, my God, no, I cannot identify with the new Amazon. I'm going to stop buying it because they're based everything on, you know, their, what they're doing best and what they, their core strength as a brand basically is and was. And in that case, it, it succeeds. Right. What I got out of what you just said is Amazon – Amazon's core values and their actual brilliance and passion comes from logistics. So it doesn't matter exactly. whether they're selling books or whether they're selling refrigerators or whatever it is. That's one item. A second item is, is that Amazon creates democratization in the marketplace for the small company looking to compete with the big brands. Amazon is one of the top five search engines in the world. This is why you have Absolutely. business creators that create these 12-page Kindle eBooks. The purpose of those 12-page Kindle eBooks is to put titles out there around the key phrases that those entrepreneurs want to be found on. Uh, the content yeah. is usually three blog posts threaded together. I mean, <laughs> I, I mean, yeah. they're they're, they're yeah. nothing. Uh, I mean, I mean, they're good for paying 99 cents for, and then you get one great idea, you implement it in your business, and you make a few hundred bucks. Awesome. <laughs> great return on investment. But the purpose of uh -huh. doing those books is simply to leverage a search engine. And yeah. going back to this idea of Amazon being a great search engine and being a democratizer is it allows the self-published author to bypass all that years and years and years of having to prove themselves worthy to write a book. Get the hell out of here. Mm -hmm. I'm 
worthy to write a book, so I want to write a book. <laughs> it's, up to, it's up to the market to decide where they like my book. And if I want to write, and if I want people to buy my book, then I better write a book that the market wants to read. That's the American way. That's the free market way. Uh, Amazon a, is a champion of that. They're a champion of that. I mean, you say they're oligarchical and they're monopolistic and all that. I mean, yeah, sure, sure they're spreading their wings. They're going into I – mean, they bought Whole Foods. They're putting up all these distribution centers and everything else. They've knocked out some competition, which is also the nature of the market. Some people thrive yeah. and some people die. That's just the way it is. Yeah. Thrive and dive. I didn't say die. I said die. Some people thrive. Some people die. It's, I wanted to make sure people heard that because it's a cute little expression I use sometimes. But when you really look at it, Amazon, as I see it, is the friend of the small business person who wants to compete with the larger, the big guys, so to speak, because they create that portal. And they, that portal is based on simplification of logistics, which enables mass distribution. So with that core value, they can sell whatever they want. I love this meme. It shows, uh, it shows Jeff Bezos back in 1999 when he was running Amazon out of this old warehouse, and he still had a, he still had a full head of hair, and he was wearing those glasses, and he was wearing those sweater vests. And, uh, and he said, hi, my name is Jeff Bezos, I sell books. And then to the right is a photograph of him walking tall and proud. He's got his head shaved. He's got his, uh, he's got his sunglasses on. He's wearing one of those padded vests with a black shirt and black slacks. And, he, and he's strutting mm-hmm. down the sidewalk. And he says, I'm Mr. Bezos. I sell what the fuck I want. <laughs> <laughs> very true, but, very but, true. But, 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 but like you know, all good memes, like all good jokes, have a grain of truth in them, and that speaks to the truth of Amazon, which is it's not about books; it's about the ability of you, the entrepreneur, the business creator, to sell what the f you want, and giving you a platform yeah. to do so if you choose to use it. And the value that it provides to to all these, to your point, to all these small businesses, and and it's funny you say that because. Um, you know, when I developed, sorry for the plug in here, but when I developed these uh, positioning roulette methodologies and decided to produce these uh, flashcards, you know, my first thought, I had them produced um, uh, in China, actually, where the printing costs are significantly lower. But then I decided, yeah. you know, uh, I can do one of two things. I can either go and uh, and uh, try to find a big publisher and, you know, take, you know, get a lot of no's and, and without any chance of succeeding that they would actually even publish that because I'm not like a big celebrity or well-known um, uh, person. Um, or I can produce them and distribute them myself. So Amazon was the perfect platform for that because I just need to ship them a whole bunch of, of my products and, you know, through their keyword search and, uh, you know, the product started to sell on its own. And when I look at the sales now, when I compare this, so of course I'm not on the New York Times bestseller list because I'm not officially the publisher. But when I look at the sales, the yearly sales number, uh, you know, I, I can see that I can I sell more of these cards than the average business book um, sales number, you know. And all that wouldn't have been possible five years ago. So um, that's a really great way to get to your point, your, the word out, your content out, and, and you know, get people to pay attention to what you have to offer. And, you know, since last year, I think uh, uh, Amazon started to invest heavily or realize that they're not only an e-commerce platform, they're also a fantastic advertising platform. You know, and have started to promote their advertising business, which I use as a small entrepreneur, you know, selling my product on Amazon. I use that because it's keyword search. You know, if someone looks for, you know, brand positioning, it's very targeted, very narrow. And when you compare the pricing structure versus a because it's only click-through rate and the rates are way lower. Interesting thing is, I think they started to promote that last year, and I think now Amazon is the third biggest advertising platform out there after you know Google and after uh, Facebook in that less than eighteen right. months. It's absolutely mind blowing. Right, right. No and again, said, it comes oh, now. No, no, no. I'm not. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, 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 yeah. They said, oh no, we can't do that because we're a book retailer. 
I mean, I remember when That's Amazon right. first came out. I've been around long enough to remember. That's where I used to go to buy my books. And the next thing you know, I was buying computer equipment. Next thing you know, I was buying furniture. Next thing you know, I was buying this and buying that. And then I, then I went to the other side. I wanted to become somebody that somebody bought stuff from. And that's one of the platforms I started with. And there, and there are other platforms like Amazon. So if you're listening to this and you don't like Amazon, the good news for you is there are other companies out there that place logistics and simplification of business process, maximizing efficiencies through minimalism as their core values. So you can work with one of their competitors. I mean, if you want to sell a book, you don't have to sell through Amazon. You can go to Barnes & Noble. You can go to Books A Million. You've got a lot of choices. Completely up to you. Yeah, the fact is these things are yeah. out there for you. And if you want to compete with the big guys, then there are big guy platforms or you know, whatever you want to call them that will enable you to get that jump start. And that's part of mm-hmm. what we have going on here. So, so Uli, we have nine minutes and 24 seconds left here, not to, not to <laughs> put a fine point on it. You've actually got me curious about positioning roulette. So I would like you to tell yeah. us a bit about how this all works. I know it's flashcards. I know it has to do with exercises and things like that. And I know it ties into yeah. positioning and branding. So how does this all work? Well, at the core, it's very simple, uh, Adam. You know, at the core, it's, it's actually a methodology. The flashcards are just the byproduct of that. Uh, the, the methodology is basically designed to help you determine what best way to position your brand. And the background to that is very simply, you know, many, many years ago, I, I realized that there are patterns when, when brands are being positioned. And those patterns are true across uh, categories that are true across geographies. And I'll give you an example. One pattern would be, you know, a brand can be positioned based on its country of origin, you know. Um, right. Or a brand can be positioned based on a very specific ingredient it has that really makes it unique and different from anyone else out there. Uh, or a brand can be positioned by the way it taps into, you know, a higher purpose that is important to consumers. And so once I realized that, I asked myself the question, how many of those patterns can I identify? And over 10 plus years, I basically looked at over 1,200 case studies of effective marketing and basically cataloged all these um, triggers, how I call them, or these different ways of positioning a brand. And that's how I came up with these 26 strategies, basically. And what this does is once you have them in front of you, uh, you can, you know, use them to inspire your own thinking. So each card describes the territory, the positioning territory um, that you can investigate and has a series uh-huh. of questions to get your thinking going, basically. So, you know, one could simply be, you know, what is your frame of reference um, for your specific brand? You know, what need do you satisfy and what other categories of products or services satisfy the same need so what does that mean if you put your brand or your offering in that different context? And what I've learned is that by doing so, for one, you are way more flexibly, flexible intellectually in looking at your brand positioning assignment from every potential angle um, than any other methodology I've seen out there. So what it does basically, it just accelerates, it guides and accelerates your thinking process when you're trying to determine how you should be positioned. And, you know, I've used right. that with small entrepreneurs that are, you know, launching a new brand, whether, you know, it's like an energy drink that tries to compete against, um, you know, the monsters and the Red Bulls of this world have done that very successfully. But I've also used that with global corporations that needed to find a, a shared positioning for their, for one of their global brands in 17 different countries. And, uh, uh, the power of this tool is simply that, that it allows you, it gives you a mental flexibility, which is basically promotes creativity in how you solve your positioning problem, which, as I said, no other methodology out there. Okay, I'm biased, obviously, but um, I haven't found anything else out there that, that replicates that and that, that allows you right. to get to an outcome so quickly. Yeah, well, I mean, then, you yes. designed it because yeah, you designed it because 
you found the market was lacking it, and you saw a demand for the market, and that's why you created Positioning Roulette. That's exactly right. And the interesting thing is when you look at how the marketing world has evolved, you know, when I remember when 20 years ago when I started my career, you know, you could take, um, I don't know, 12 months, 18 months to develop a brand positioning statement, right, or to develop a strategy, and right. then you could plug in another year to develop sort of like the creative idea. Nowadays, you only have weeks um, to do the same thing. And, you know, the, the problem is, because you lack the time, you become more sloppy in how you do it, or less rigorous. And that kind of like bothered me because the know-how is there, the knowledge is there, just the way we apply it is antiquated and expensive. So what this does, it basically takes, call it best practices or you know accepted um, successful methodologies. And because it is in a sort of like roulette format, which is a more sort of like creative format, you can basically get to the same outcome at a fraction of the time and a fraction of the cost that it would you know, normally take you. So, yeah, it addresses a quality speed gap that I saw um, over the last few years becoming bigger and bigger and bigger. Now I just need to convince more people that there is a quality speed gap and that they should buy it. Exactly. Now, as we close out here, I want to make one other up. As we as we close out, I want to make one other observation. And you know, through the course of our conversation, really, we've we've touched on the themes of uh, you know, protectionism versus open markets, uh, nationalism versus globalism, all these fun things. And mm-hmm. we hear about in the media every day. And I know somebody who is a manufacturer here in the United States. And when he saw the changes in the taxation structures, the regulatory environment that have in some ways made it more palatable than it's been for a long time for businesses to do business here in the United States, he said, okay, America first. I'll have my stuff manufactured right here, and I'll support American workers. He couldn't do it. Here's the reason why. He approached several American companies that said that they'd be able to produce what he needed produced, but they were – they didn't get back to him with documents. They they didn't have start times. They didn't understand what he was asking for. They didn't make an effort to understand what he was asking for. And he had to make the tough decision between trying to continue to pursue this and maintaining overseas production facilities. And he ultimately yeah. had to opt for the latter. So when I think of yeah. branding, I think in addition to all this other, you know, color palettes and stuff, I think of your reputation and how you build that reputation. And as I see it, another component of branding is understanding the environment you're in, regardless of your personal feels about it and how you can take advantage of it. And when I heard his story, all I'm thinking of is these are companies that do not understand branding at all. They're getting it handed to them on a silver platter, and they're not standing up to the opportunity. As far as I'm concerned, they reap their own own crops or lack thereof. So – I mean, does that I mean is that playing the branding as well, in your opinion? Absolutely, and you know, I'd almost like reverse this because one thing you often hear is that only only in Western Europe or in the U.S. you can produce quality products, and you know, everywhere yeah. outside of Western Europe and the U.S., you only produce you know they only produce crap, um, which is often used as an excuse for not going abroad or for playing right. down the quality of these these uh, products manufactured abroad. But the reality is. They are so low quality because that's what the retailers here in the U.S. who contract the production of this product are willing to pay. So, if you get exactly. you know a five dollar T-shirt, if you get a five dollar T-shirt at Walmart that is crap, that's because Walmart is not willing to pay more than fifty cents for the T-shirt. You know, but you could right. equally well get a five dollar T-shirt, let's say out of China or Turkey, and have a high quality uh, product. That that a lot of people would find attractive. Let's not forget the the iPhone is produced in China. You know what I mean? It's right. it's not produced here in the U.S. It's produced. It's a high quality, technically uh, developed product produced in Chinese companies or manufacturing plants. Yeah. So so the, the perceived weakness in quality is not a, an excuse. But to your point, yes, you got to think globally. You got to think in terms of sourcing. You got to think in terms of customer needs, and and not in terms of geography. That is coming back to our initial starting point. It's a limitation to your yeah. creativity. You know, if if you right. move exactly. away from these barriers, the world is your oyster. 
Sure. Sure. We are out of time here, and I want to, first of all, Uli, Uli Applebaum, thank you so much for being with us today. It's been an honor in education. To learn more about this, go to first-the-trousers.com, firstthetrousers.com. If you Google the phrase first the trousers, you'll find it. So, Uli, again, thank you very much. And no, for everybody thanks so much for having me, Ed. I'm really in. Yes. Yes. All right. <laughs> I know. So, such an exciting topic. For everybody listening, this is Adam Homey, host of the Business Creators Radio Show. Please visit our website at www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com, where we help you win at the game of business and marketing. Until next time, have a great day. Take care.